Welcome to the HR on the Offensive podcast, brought to you by Lace Partners. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, and welcome to the latest HR on the Offensive podcast. It's me, Chris Howard, joining you once again for our latest edition of our ongoing podcast saga. Does it become a saga? When it's a series. Series. Sounds a bit more positive. But it just goes on forever. It's like one of those American sort of series where they've got like 72 episodes or something, or country file. That seems to go on forever, doesn't it? I'm rambling. I should probably stop rambling because this is a 30-minute podcast and we have so much to get through today. I am joined. It's a quartet on today's podcast, so I'll introduce them before I then start into the topic. We will start with the person to the left of me because we're in the office, which is our co-founder and managing director, Kathy Agritoplo. Hello. Hi, Chris. Good to be here again. Yes. I mean, people probably already know that you're here because you just jumped in and said it's a series. So now they know who you are. I'm frequently accused of just jumping in and talking over people. I will resist that temptation today, Chris. Uh, Joining us as well virtually to my left on the screen is Debbie Mitchell, who is one of our senior managers. Deb, you all right? Hi. Nice to be here. Nice and succinct rather than me rambling. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Keep going. (laughs) Right. So, and our guest, who Debbie and I have spoken to before today, and we've wanted to get on for quite a while. It's Gethin Nadine, who is the Chief Innovation Officer at Benefax. Gethin, how are you, sir? I am not too bad. Thank you. How are you all? We are good. We are good. And quite excited to talk about today's topic because we see you as a well-being influencer, somebody who's obviously got a lot to say and good things to say on the well-being space. So Gethin, our wonderful guest, could you tell our fabulous listeners a little bit about yourself and your background and uh, what you do and benefits as well as a business? So firstly, thank you for having me on. Debbie actually did some training for me many years ago, and I've read her book. So this kind of feels like it's coming full circle. So that's my really claim good. to fame. <laughs> <laughs> so my name is Gethin Aden. I'm Chief Innovation Officer at a company called Benefex. I'm also a psychologist and a two times best-selling HR author. I advise the government in various different roles on workplace issues and the future of employability. And this year was named UK Mental Health Campaign of the Year and HR's Most Influential Thinker. So obviously pretty proud of those two achievements. The company I work for, Benefex, we are an employee experience technology company. We have more than 2 million employees using our products to enhance their experience at work. And that covers everything from benefits to well-being, recognition and communications. We help about 600 global employers. We're one of the world's leading providers of employee experience technology. And we're also in the Sunday Times, the top employers of 2023. So an award given to us by the people that work with us. So hopefully this is a testament that we don't just help other employers solve the well-being problem. We actively do it ourselves internally. Lovely. The reason why we wanted to get you on is obviously with that well-being slant, but particularly because at the moment we are running a campaign. The campaign itself is called the Employee Experience Revolution. We are going to be producing a whole series of different content pieces, blogs, podcasts, video. We'll be running some events too as well. And the fundamental premise behind it, and I'll get you just to add to this, Cathy, is around the critical strategic importance of demonstrating that you as a business have a compelling employee value proposition and how actually it needs to underpin what you are delivering as an organisation and the values that it can add as a business as well. Cathy, just for you, if you can give me a minute or so on the actual campaign and then we'll get into a little bit around some of the stuff that benefits do and get thoughts around the importance of well-being and, and the guys at uh, benefits have also produced which we'll put in the show notes as well a report called the well-being report strategies benefits and tech so kathy 
Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think um, I think this ties in well, Gethin, with your background and also your passions that we're going to be talking about today, because where we're coming at this one with the Marine Experience Revolution, I guess, is a recognition that the external market, whilst there is a lot of uncertainty, we still have very high employment and we also have, therefore have a really challenging talent market. And similarly, we think that employees' value sets have changed over time, over the last few years, and things like well-being are now much higher up the, not just the wish list, but the demand list, if you like, from employees when they're looking for job opportunities and choosing, as most people will have, a choice of options as to where they want to work. So we come at this with that revolution angle, because from our perspective, CPOs, HR leaders now really need to reset the overall employee value proposition to be able to differentiate, attract and retain talent over time to deliver that bottom line outcome that their their business leaders need from their people in their business. And we know that well-being as I say, is a major driver and differentiator opportunity for employers. So I think from a campaign point of view, this fits in really nicely. I'm very keen to get your sort of insights and experience, Gethin, as to what has changed and why well-being is now far more prominent when an individual is looking for where they want to work and also whether they want to stay with the organisation that they're working for. Yeah, so I think it's a fascinating space. You know, you've touched upon a lot of the points I would have made, which is we are going through significant social change. I think that's what this is. I think people are starting to value themselves and their well-being more than perhaps they ever have. There's a big TikTok trend of people kind of, no job is worth your mental health is a phrase that's being used a lot by a lot of young people on social media. And we have record numbers of people who are quitting jobs without something else to go to because actually they've realized that being happy and unemployed is better than being unhappy and employed. And the data backs this up right across the the US and the UK, the number of people quitting is obviously at record highs, and especially in America, but in the UK and throughout Europe as well. And the number of people quitting without another job to go to is really, really high. And so we've never seen people have that kind of confidence before. I think the influence we've seen, there has been a shift in power balance or influence. There has been, you know, employees have taken up this mantle and decided, you know what, I think I make decisions now. I don't work for somebody, I work with somebody, and I'm going to put myself first, and I'm going to make some active decisions. And as you've touched upon, obviously, the hiring environment is allowing us to do that, allowing employees to have the confidence to be able to say, you know what, this isn't worth it. I'm going to go somewhere else. How that might change if we skirt a recession, if we get to deflation and the higher environment changes, that power balance will probably tip more towards the employer again. But I think we've gone through significant change. I don't think it will ever go back to the way it is. And I think employees will always have a bigger level of influence over who they work for and how they make decisions to do with their work than perhaps they've ever had before. So I think it's fundamentally changed really society in that respect and how people think about and value work. I'm interested, Kevin, in what do you think has been some of the drivers for that change? I mean, it's easy to blame post-pandemic life, right? I hear that a lot, that it's post-COVID, this is what we're experiencing. But was it happening before? Are we seeing that shift pre-COVID or is COVID really the kind of trigger? It's really interesting. I think a lot of complicated and fairly complex things have come together at once. I think the pandemic is one of those things. I mean, if I look at the research I've been doing and some of the talks I've been doing over the last 12 months, I think there are two key points in our recent history that have changed people's view of the workplace pretty significantly. The first being the 2008 financial crisis. So that's when financial precarity and insecurity was introduced to the lives of millions for the first time ever. So we can track the fact that UK productivity, for example, hasn't recovered from the 2008 financial crisis. The only country in the OECD to not recover from the lack of productivity caused by the 2008 financial crisis. You can look at 
any number of different metrics to see the impact of that financial crisis on education, skills, healthcare, mental health. We saw suicide rates increase on the back of the financial crisis. And if you look at anyone that entered the workforce around 2008, they entered a very different workforce past that point to those who had started the work before then. And then 15 years later, you had the pandemic and that whole workplace landscape changed again. So in just 15 years, if you were born from kind of 1980 onwards, you've been at the sharp end of those two events and you've also been at the sharp end of the cost of living crisis. And that has squeezed people so much that officially now looking at the data, the under 40s in the UK and the US, but particularly in the UK, are now the unluckiest generation in history, economically speaking. So they've had slow wage growth, high house price rises, widening inequality gaps, widening wealth gaps throughout the UK. And there's a lot of data to back up the fact that a lot of young people are now rejecting capitalism or the unfair distribution of capitalism. And I think that stuff was all compounded with the pandemic, giving us these moments of quiet reflection to think about, is this the kind of work I want to do? And is this the company I want to do it for? Retail hospitality in the UK still years later struggling to get people to come and work in those businesses and and think of a career in those industries. So I think it's a combination of things. But I think people have just felt all these pressures. And I think the deal has fallen down. I think the social contract was you come to work and you'll be able to afford to do things like put food in your belly, turn the heating on and put a roof over your head. And for millions of people, work's not even allowing them to do those things anymore. And so Mm. if that deal is falling down, I think that's contributing a lot to people putting themselves first rather than just working for a living like we used to. I think that's all interesting, but I kind of go back to those early days of some of those major events happening where I think organisations were rebelling more against that. I remember hearing quite a lot about how financial well-being was not the concern of the employer, right? It's your problem. You've got to manage your own finances. As an employer, it's not my responsibility. So again, that's changed. And I guess that's connected into that, I hate the expression, that war for talent sort of dynamic as well to a degree, right? So it's where is that? And that shift of the power balance that I can make those decisions more as a candidate based on what I'm hearing. Yeah. And I think that the bit you touched upon there is almost this paternalistic nature of employers, right? So you're talking about how financial well-being, they were like, well, that's home life stuff. That's nothing to do with us. We're not going to get involved exactly. in that at all. Somebody yeah. is bad at managing their money on or being in debt. That's not my problem to solve. I'm not getting involved in the lives of people. But we physically forced home and work lives together. Two of us are joining from home. Two of us are joining from the office. As employers, we've merged those lives. We brought those two lives together. And I think the paternal aspect is a really, really interesting debate. I think if you look at this moment in time, we have very large global tech employers that appear to be harking back to this old era of the workplace. We've seen the likes of Elon Musk tell people to get back to the office, some of his staff sleep on the office floor. And it feels like some leaders are trying to pull us back to that old age that many of us thought was long forgotten. This idea that you come to work, you get paid, and that's the sum and the end of the relationship between the employer and the employee. But at the same time as that's happening, you're having some really progressive employers who are happy to see their role as getting actively involved in the lives of their people. So employers in the US, for example, who following the overturning of Roe versus Wade are saying, do you know what? If you need an abortion and it's illegal in your state, we will pay for you to travel to the state where it's not illegal, have the procedure done, and we will pay for your travel and the time that you need to take off to do that. You've also got large CEOs taking stand against social issues to support their people, like Patagonia in the US telling Donald Trump they'll pay the legal fees for any employees who are at risk of being deported. Now, they're extreme examples, I think, of a paternal employer, but I think it's just one side of the same coin. And I think that coin is actually how employers have been supporting well being for 70 years, in my view, for hundreds of millions, their retirement, their health insurance, that's always been tied to the workplace. So we've always had paternal employers. And I think when the real evidence started to emerge in the 1970s and 1980s, that showed us that if an employer can keep its staff happy and healthy, they will get better business results. That's when we started to to, to kind of take note. And I think 
when an organization takes care of its people and supports their lives, they're doing that for kind of several reasons. One, because many see it as part of their responsibility as an employer to take care of the people that work for them. Secondly, because to most of us, that happy and healthy employees will always work harder and commit more. And thirdly, I think this is where the modern view of well-being is heading pretty quickly. And I think your research and ours is, is hinting heavily at this is because it actually starts to make you an employer of choice. You know, life is very difficult. Employees fall into debt, they get divorced, they fall ill, they have relationship breakdowns and care and responsibilities. And, you know, for anyone listening, who would you rather work for? An employer that stepped up to help you through some of the worst things life can throw at you or one that, quite frankly, doesn't give a shit about you. And I think that's where well-being has quite rightly taken its place in the employee value proposition, as you've mentioned before. I would love to come back to that paternalistic point in a second, because I think this is about what's the optimal balance now, right? So we can debate what's the optimal balance. But before we do, I'd quite like to explore the commercial commerciality, the value from an employer point of view, because to me, exactly as you described, you know, we know there is a direct link between the, the value that comes from attracting and retaining talent, the value that comes from having that talent when they're working for you, being positive, engaged, and therefore productive, and giving great customer experience if they're having an amazing employee experience. So there is distinct commercial value to this. So from an employer point of view, in a difficult talent market, it makes very strong commercial sense. I want to, to sort of also think about the ESG agenda as well and, and get your thoughts on how well-being now is also a way of an organisation demonstrating its ESG credentials. Yeah, so if you take the ESG pit first, ESG, environmental, social and governance, this falls very firmly, what we're talking about, into that S of ESG, which I think... For lots of people, investors and consumers in particular, has been the most elusive part of those three letters. You know, I think it's been pretty easy for us to look at sustainability, environmental factors, and you know, investors have taken up the mantle on investing in businesses that want to be more sustainable and environmentally conscious. And if you look at lots of the data, it's that S piece which lots of people have really struggled with is how to actually deliver that. I think what's really interesting is with a lot of this stuff, rightly or wrongly, when the money starts following it, you know it's probably onto something. And I think when we talk about the commercial benefit of taking better care of people at work. You've got people like me who will talk about, you know, higher performance, more engaged employees, as you've mentioned, you know, a happy and healthy employee will deliver better customer service, will have better customer relationships, will sell more, all that great stuff. But I think to a certain extent, when you look at um, investor behavior at the moment, I'm not entirely sure it matters what anyone listening to this podcast believes about what we're talking about or not. So I think there are now enough employees doing this kind of stuff that are forcing even the most backwards employers to change the way they interact with their employees. And where that's linking with investors, I think one of the good examples we had recently was shareholders for Tesla covering about, I think it was about $1.5 billion in stock. They wrote to the board of Tesla telling them that they had to do more to create a better working environment. And they know as investors that they will not get the financial returns they want if a company doesn't look after its employees. Last year, we saw that 94% of the top 600 investors in the US say they want to see evidence that a company looks after its employees before they will invest. And even Amazon, uh, again, like Tesla, for me, a post the child of how not to treat employees over the years, quite frankly. In his swan song letter to investors when he stepped down as CEO of Amazon, Jeff Bezos said that they put the customer at the center of everything they do. And he said that whilst that was the right decision, and I'm paraphrasing, he hinted that perhaps that should not have come at the expense of the lives of the people that were working for Amazon. And this is a company that a few years ago was, you know, employees have been prevented from unionizing. You know, there were stories in the media about employees having to urinate in bottles because they couldn't leave their workstations. And on the back of 
that's just two examples. But what we've also started to see in the in the US in particular, um, something called the Business Roundtable, which has among its members the CEOs of the top 200 companies in the US, like uh, Apple, Walmart, Johnson & Johnson, etc. In the new redefined statement of purpose that came out this year in 2023, the organization said that the number one priority for US employers is now to put employee needs on parity with shareholder needs. So really, really big shift post-pandemic in how employers value people. But where investors, and we have lots of data to back up consumer behavior changing and leaning more towards how do you treat your people? And I'm only going to give you my consumer business if you look after the people. You know, all the money's following this now. So the commercial side of this is actually, if you're if you're a startup looking for investment, you're probably going to get questions from investors about how you take care of your people. If you've got shareholders, they're probably going to be asking you about well-being. I mean, we had a study just a couple of months ago between Harvard University and Oxford University. One of the most compelling and largest workplace well-being studies conducted ever, where they found actually the more happy and healthier your employees are, the happier shareholders will be. And they found that this wasn't just correlation. This was actually cause and effect. If you make more people well in your business, you all have happier shareholders. So they found that well-being comes first and then those financial returns start to start to return. So yeah, really, really interesting space and, and very fast moving. You know, the evidence is emerging to back up a lot of things I've said, you know, every month that goes by. I Absolutely. Think. Absolutely. I think the other thing that we're seeing happen more now, and it still is relatively rare, but would be good to get your input on is the combination of the employee experience and the customer experience role at C-suite. So not necessarily sitting necessarily under the CPO remit, um, it's becoming a C-suite agenda to actually have both of those roles combined into someone who is at C-suite level, making the direct tangible link between employee experience and customer experience and therefore business success and owning both aspects. But I don't know whether you've seen that emerging in different organizations. When I wrote my first book in 2016, one of the first keynote talks I did on the back of that book was exactly about how actually the customer experience starts with a great employee experience. And uh, I, I did this keynote talk and uh, I said a few things that I hadn't practiced. And one of them ended up in a newspaper, a quote in the newspaper the following day, which I had to go to our CEO and apologize for because... I basically said, you know, I tried to find an example of what's the ultimate customer experience role? What's the role where somebody cannot fail to deliver a great customer experience? And I thought about the happiest place on earth, which was Disneyland, officially the happiest place on earth or Disney World. And I thought if you're putting on your your cast members, they call them, don't they? But as you're putting mm -hmm. on your cast member costume and you're dressing up as Mickey Mouse, people are paying thousands of pounds or thousands of dollars for a once in a lifetime trip. If you're unhappy or not engaged or a bit pissed off at work and you bring that personality through when you're delivering, you know, Make-A-Wish Foundation dreams for kids who've got disabilities or, or not long to live or any kid that might be visiting the park and all this kind of stuff, you know, nobody wants to go to Disneyland and meet a pissed off Mickey Mouse. And I think that was the quote that ended up in the newspaper. Um, <laughs> but, um, but that's, I think that's a really good example of actually, there's no missed opportunities. It's not like you're going to go down to the grocery store and, and buy something and somebody's going to give you a bit of attitude, but you'll still go in the next week and they might be okay. This is an experience you're probably going to have once in your life. Great example. What I'd like to explore as well, and I, I will then stop talking because I did you say at the beginning, like I'm not going to talk over you. Let's move us on to well-being specifically then, because I think from, from your perspective, it'd be good to think about how when we say well-being, scope has changed, right, in terms of what we see as being in the well-being offering now compared to maybe the traditional, well, that's all about health insurance right? or how many holidays you get each year. Things have moved on dramatically. So maybe just good to get your perspective on when we talk well-being now, the breadth of what that encompasses. 
So this is a big feature of my latest book, if I can plug that, a work in progress. And that's really about, you know, the industry, the well-being industry has run away with itself over the last couple of years. And I think sold us a false idea of what well-being is. I've probably conducted more than 200 well-being workshops with global employers over the last few years. A lot of that output was, is what created the book. Now, when I ask an employer about their approach to well-being, one of the frequent answers I got was, here's a list of everything I've bought to support the well-being of my people. And we're like, well, that's not really well-being. You know, when you look at what makes people well, in work and in life, there's a whole list of things about, do I have a voice? Do I feel like I'm being listened to? Do I have a great relationship with my manager? Do I trust the organization? Do I trust the manager? Do I like the team members? Am I being communicated to? Is that being transparent? Am I getting recognized for a job well done? You know, all these different things stack up and that's to do with organizational structure. That's not to do with things you can go out and buy. That's not to say that things you can go out and buy can't enhance that well-being experience at work and better support people. But fundamentally, it's about how do we treat people and then a balance of the things and the challenges people have in life and the resources they have to be able to deal with them. And employers can give people more resources. So, I mean, a really obvious example that everyone listening probably has is a pension or a retirement function, you know, 401k or something like that. That is an employer putting something in place that's going to solve a problem for you as a, a well-being problem for you as an employee. And so, you know, that balance of kind of resources that you have available to deal with stuff, employers can add more to that and, and, and buffer people against some of these stresses in life. But fundamentally, it's about organizational structure. And so I think it's, you know, a whole list of things I pulled together from the book, which is, you know, what makes people happy and well is, you know, autonomy plays a big part of that. Belonging and purpose plays a big part of it. Enjoying the company of the people you work with. And and we don't necessarily talk about things like purpose and belonging when we talk about well-being at work, but they absolutely do contribute to that. You just mentioned the purpose thing, and I'd like to explore that if that's all right. And apologies, Debbie's barely got a word in anyway, so we'll let you go next, Debbie. Or you can give me, actually, you can give me your thoughts on this because we talked a little bit around that and you've given some really, really good examples of, you know, like Twitter, X, Elon Musk, and you've got uh, Tesla and things like that. And perhaps, I don't know, 10 years ago, 15 years ago, you almost look at these companies as that's my employer of choice because of the brand and because it looks good on my CV. And I just want to get you to reflect on those changes, particularly from a well-being perspective. And the report touches on that as well, about how it's well-being is now the number one thing that people are looking for. And maybe the evolution of that, because, you know, I know myself, 15 years ago, I'm looking at where's my career going to go. And often it would might the question I'd ask myself is, well, what looks good? For me to have done or I've, I've gone through this type of business i've almost gone to that type of brand and that looks good whereas as you say in the report people are now looking at well actually who's going to align to my purpose like what my values what i believe in and then are they going to treat me right and look after me yeah, I mean, it has changed. You know, what the the report that you mentioned at the uh, the start of the the podcast. You know, we surveyed around seven thousand employees across five countries, and we've done that repeatedly for the last couple of years. And as well as finding out that the vast vast majority of employees see employee well being as a strategic priority to them as employers, around ninety nine percent of employees we spoke to said yes to that question. It was in their top three. For me, the most fascinating result came from what the employees told us. So ninety two percent of global employees told us that a commitment to employee well being was now their number one priority when looking for a new role. Really, really significant, I think, and shows that role that well-being is playing in that employee value proposition and your ability to attract, attract people and retain them. But also 86% told us that their well-being was as important as their pay and that most would now leave a job that didn't support their well-being. 
And another study that came out from a health provider in the UK just today found that that figure was 88% said their well-being is now as important as their pay. So, you know, back to our earlier point, people are making choices about who they go and work with around well-being. You know, if we go through another pandemic, is this going to be the kind of company that's going to be there for me? And again, I think that that forms part of what we talked about the, at the start of this conversation, which is about this uh, this change in society, really. I don't know if that mirrors some of the stuff you've seen, Debbie, as well. It definitely does. And I think the, the question around purpose is also an interesting one, because I think that's another key driver around where do I go to work and what is the company doing and what's the environment I'm going to work in? And I think that that's the interesting thing for me around, you know, choice isn't, to your point, any longer about the salary, the benefits as in, you know, my bonus, my car, whatever. But it, it becomes a different, more holistic decision maker. And I think, you know, we talked earlier about ESG as well, which is, again, I think a really key factor in Gen Z, typically that, you know, they want to see that ESG agenda high and meaningfully. And I think this is the other thing for me is, you know, a lot of companies will pay lip service and we'll talk about the good stuff. So, I, you know, your, your Amazon example is a great one. And it, I always find it interesting to reflect now on TV adverts for Amazon are now all about the experience I have as an employee. Yeah. They're no longer about how quickly I can get my stuff. They're about, you know, how I was supported through IVF treatment as an employee of Amazon, for example. So there is an important difference around, as I say, paying lip service to it and having all the right glossy brochures and actually how it feels in the organization. And I think that's one of the things we talk about in the the campaign again is it, it's bigger than just, you know, what, what you tell me my experience will be like. It's what I feel it's like in every aspect of the job that I do. And and how that kind of connects. And that includes, Chris, back to your point on purpose, right? You know, I'm in an organization where I feel like they're doing meaningful work. It's adding value somewhere to somebody. And that helps me, right? I've I've got a, you know, I've got a sense of purpose around that. So that that supports my well-being. It might be difficult some days, right? I might feel really stressed out or anxious, but I know that what I'm doing is for a a, a good purpose. And I think that there's a really interesting point there as well. There's a I tried to explain this in some kind of simple diagram I pulled together for the book, and it's basically a Venn diagram of three circles. One of those represents the employer brand, so the kind of the feeling I get. So you might walk into a store, get your tires changed at a garage, you know, walk into a grocery store, whatever it might be, and you start to get an experience of what that employment might be like. You look at the website, they might say all the right things, they might tell you that mental health is really important to them, and we give people well-being days, and we do all this kind of stuff, and you start to get this feel for, this is a kind of employer that takes care of my well-being. And then if you start working for that business, you get the employee experience, you get that promise you start to see kind of come to life, which is actually, oh, do you know what? Yeah, you know, I do get I get the emails celebrating World Mental Health Day and International Women's Day. And I see we've got a DNI report and we've got a DNI champion and all these employee resource groups. And I see the right posters up in the workplace and all this kind of stuff. And and you kind of feel like, oh, that promise is coming true. You know, what they said at the outset is actually materializing. I feel like I work for a company that cares for me. And then something happens to me and the employer isn't there for me. They don't have the benefits in place that are going to support a cancer diagnosis. They aren't treating me with kindness when I have bereavement in my business. And I've got friends who've experienced this. I've got friends who work for a company where they would send them cards basically saying, you've got this, your mental health is important to us. We're always here for you. And then that same employee, when her father died in the pandemic, she was told to take a day off for his funeral. And then she was called at the day of his funeral to say, you need to take a 20% pay cut because of what's happening with the pandemic. 
and we were like how is this the right thing to be doing uh, what, what you know i think there's loads of examples of companies trying to do the right thing and giving it that lip service and that kind of well-being washing as it's kind of being coined now but fundamentally not actually really helping the well-being of their people and i'm sure telling that story everybody listening have their own experience of employer they worked with or a friend or a partner who's been treated a little bit badly by an employer and you know I've judged awards for companies that have entered well-being awards that I know people have left those businesses. Somebody I found out recently was made redundant by the HR director who didn't stop to answer any questions this person had because she was on her way to a Take That concert and said, well, pick this up on Monday because I've got to go and see Take That. And we were like, you don't make somebody redundant and then not allow them to process that or ask any questions. Yet this is a company that I have seen in the last few months win awards for their approaches yeah. to employee well-being. So there is a big disconnect and a big UK bank has gone through this. If somebody, if you want to Google kind of big UK bank, cancer diagnosis, employee, you'll read about a really fascinating case where a UK bank who's got lots of awards for well-being, signed loads of charters, uh, again, a poster child for the right thing to do, how they really failed one employee when it ultimately came down to supporting their well-being. And there's loads of examples of that. You know, every every week in the HR news, somebody will win a tribunal because they were unfairly treated at work. And that just conflicts with how these companies are pitching themselves and saying they're that kind of company. I think Gethin, the point, and, and I completely agree with you with the um, model. We have one very similar, funnily enough, Gethin, where we, uh, we talk very explicitly about the EVB being the promise and the employee experience being the reality. And how those two compare will will directly drive experience of work and the engagement, productivity, and whether someone chooses to stay, right? So in that first six, 12 months of joining somewhere, does it stack up? Do I feel that like I was sold a, a pup or do I actually yeah, feel yeah. that what, what I was sold is, is the reality of what's happening here? So a very similar sort of equation that we refer to in terms of that, you know, the sort of mathematical equation about it, if you like. What I would like to come to, the examples you've raised, we've all experienced something like that, right? I'm sure each of us will be able to cite where actually it didn't feel right. The, the promise that I've been sold didn't stack up in my employer. And I'm sure that happens regularly in every organization, whatever their aspiration is, right? And so some of this is about consistency. And so I'd like to explore maybe your perspective on the CPO's role and the HR function's role in achieving that consistency. Because it's not just about having the right well-being offering, it's ensuring that every employee, everyone who interacts with your business and is working for you, actually has the same experience so that you don't get those hopefully infrequent occurrences of where it doesn't work, which actually comes also down to the role of the line manager, right? And the HR support they're getting in those scenarios where where an individual is at a particular moment that really matters to them and how the employer then does step up or doesn't step up and reinforces or undermines the promise that they made to that person. So what's your role around H your view on HR's role, the CPO's role in making that happen? Yes, it's really interesting because some of these examples I've shared about people just in my life that have had those negative experiences. In one of those examples, the HR team, I think, are very good. And the chief people officer, I think, is a very good chief people officer. But actually, what that highlighted was in their business, they did not have the attention of the board. They did not have the influence to make some of these decisions. And you'll get this in a lot of businesses from the top down. The CEO will write in the group reports, our employees are important to us, employee well-being is important to us. You know, there is a consistency in things like 
using the words well-being and mental health in group reports and how successful you are as a FTSE 250 business. So lots of CEOs like saying this stuff. And as we've mentioned, investors like hearing it. So they put it in group accounts. And fundamentally, what happens is you get this top-down approach where they're like, yep, well-being is important. Make it important. Value people. But then we put processes in place or policies in place that conflict with that. So sometimes managers are forced to put policy over people. So if somebody came to you and said, my father passed away on the weekend, and they go, okay, right, well, your one-week bereavement leave starts now. And that person might have had a really complicated relationship with their father. They might have been very, very close to the father. And actually, for that person, two weeks might be the right amount. But managers are restrained by saying, well, actually, no, our policy is one. I've got to stick to the policy. So sometimes I think we don't give managers the ability to, you know, they, they're closest to our employees. They understand them. They work in the team. We should give them the ability to make the decisions they need to make to the benefit of that employee rather than just following that policy and procedures. And I think we have to take the role of the chief people officer much more seriously. We, we, for years and years, we've debated this idea that they need a seat at the table. And for lots of businesses, that happens. You know, well-being people still don't get the investment intention. You know, I, I run a, a group at the moment with about 30 big well-being leaders globally covering companies like Unilever, Ford, um, Bacardi, HSBC. And we meet on a regular basis to talk about the role of the well-being lead within an organization. And in some of those businesses, the CEO speaks to them on a weekly basis. He's got a huge investment or she's got a huge investment in that person and what they're doing. In others, it's just one person sat in a health and safety team or it's just one part of the, the people team. And I think you see the same with HR. I think you could line up 50 chief people officers globally and the way that they are valued in a business and the way they're treated by the board, the investment they get, the resources they get available to them will vary massively from one to another. And so I think if you're really going to take this seriously and you listen to the evidence, you have to give the ability to that team or that individual to do the things they need to do, to follow the evidence to get you the results, which means listening to what they've got to say and giving them a seat at the board or at least listening to them on a regular basis and funding it well. You know, I think you know, HR still does not, generally speaking, get the funding it requires in most examples that I see. I've looked at trying to do, I was set up a couple of years ago to give guest lecturing to CIPD students on how to ask for more money because HR is not as good at asking for money as some other parts of the business. So I think a lot of this depends not just on HR people doing the right thing, but having the ability and the influence to be able to make sure that the right managers are recruited and trained, that managers see their role in employee well-being as part of their and their team's success as well, not just as business success. And I think lots of stuff we've talked about today, most managers don't get exposed to. They don't get to see this data which says, you know what, if your team is happier and healthier, not only is their productivity better, but our shareholders investors are going to be happier yeah so this is part of your success as an individual this isn't just this left-wing liberal let's let's take better care of people yeah i i think that your point around people managers is also really interesting Gethin. and i i think there is a tendency to rely on policy and process but also i think some people managers like that i think there's a there's a role of the the people function to help line managers feel more confident to take the right decision so it's it's not about capability necessarily it's it's about having that confidence that if i just say to you look actually take what time you need you you tell me what you need not I'll follow the process that actually I won't then be hauled over the coals or, you know, that that my responsibility as a people manager has been, you know, I've been allowed to take that ownership. And I think I think that's a, a key part of what actually, you know, chief people officers can do or HR functions can do to help people managers have that confidence as well as the capability. 
And I'm coming at this from a, in inverted commas, well-being expert, but also working for a large employee. We employ more than 600 employees globally now in, in five different countries. But I also have a fairly large team. I have 10 people reporting to me. So, you know, I see this from every angle. I know how difficult the people management job is, and I know how difficult it is to do well. And most people who do that people management job also do lots of other things. <laughs> it's not just managing people. is not their entire job. So I have a lot of sympathy with how difficult it can be. But I think, you know, in that combination, of the kind of promise, the experience, and then how we support it. And the manager's got a big role to play in actually treating people like individuals and, and looking at their circumstances that say, you know, and I'm of the view that if somebody's got a really close relationship with their cat, and I don't mean that in a weird way, but if somebody's quite close to their cat and their cat passes away and that really affects them, why can't bereavement leave kick in for a few days for someone who's lost a cat? You know, we treat people like individuals. Yeah. And if that's going to affect their work and we can better support them by doing that. And as I mentioned at the start, I think a, a happy, healthy and well-supported individual will always give you more than they would have if you didn't do those things. I remember exactly that conversation with somebody. I'm going to go back to early 90s. That's how old I am. About, you know, their, their dog had died. And why weren't they given the same treatment as somebody who's child had because for her that was how the relationship felt it threw us into chaos at yeah, that time yeah. you know the idea that that would be kind of a similar benchmark but I think it's it's very valid certainly and I'm looking forward to being able to mention to Kathy and Aaron our co-founders when the sad time comes that my beloved Iago Moggy leaves this world I'll get some uh, you will I'll get, get some, a lot of sympathy here's my child here's my child we are almost out of time we've gone into a little bit of added time actually because this has been a really fascinating conversation Debbie I'm going to let you have just a, a quick final piece question whilst we've got Gethin and I think yeah. probably what we're going to do is pester him to come on again because I feel like we could probably <laughs> unpick quite a lot more of this, some of these topics but just to wrap us up yeah. Debbie anything just final thoughts or questions yeah I, I think the interesting question is often about where does well being sit both organizationally sort of within the is it in the people function or is it somewhere else in, in an organization but also just in terms of the offer to our employees so you know is it a reward thing does it sit somewhere else what's, what's your view around that Gethin? So I think it's my opinion that well-being should sit within reward and the reward and benefit function. I think historically, most employee benefit schemes have been designed around supporting employee well-being. We found that in our most recent research, the number one reason why you would offer benefits is now well-being and has been consistently for a couple of years. It's also the reward and benefits function is kind of department in most organizations that has a clear budget and a reason for being that the board understands and the business understands and it has profit and loss attached to it. And you can kind of tag well-being onto this area that is quite galvanized and, and pretty solid. Benefits are rewards. They they form part of this deal an employee gets. But as I've mentioned a few times, you know, well-being is becoming part of that deal. Come and work with me and I will take care of you. And I will do that in part through things like the benefits that I offer. So the, that example I mentioned about the experience and the promise and the reality, you know, if you get cancer, the benefits are the things that actually provide the support. So the communications piece and the feeling you get, benefits are one of those things that give you that kind of thing. If you develop poor mental health, you know, we'll make experts available and insurances that will kick in to support you. While I don't think well-being is a reward in that sense, in the normal sense of the word, I do think that well-being should form part of the reward function. I guess, and I'm really intrigued by that, and we haven't got enough time to debate this, so maybe maybe we do we'll need go, another we're session, to do a second one. or at the very least a glass of wine. I think this is yeah. one worth, <laughs> worth debating because because to me, I can see the logic and I can see the the rationale. I guess I think it for me it depends on who owns experience, right, in the organisation, and and actually 
is reward there as an SME advisor on the well-being, the experiences, in my view, I know well-being is a major component, but other things are really important in experience as well. And if I know you've done lots of research and so on, but the question to an employee, what do you value most about working for an organisation? Well-being will be absolutely up there, that right? And I know it's come out top on a lot of your surveys, but for me, it's also about skills, development, future progression, you know, where I'm going in the organisation, what I get to make me a more rounded, better, more capable person that, that improves my worth and my, my prospects, right? So all of these things are very important. And to me, I think there needs to be an owner of that end to end across the organization and if that and if that is in place and done well with the right budget and leadership sponsorship and c suite exposure then I could see well-being quite naturally sitting in there as well right so but yeah. uh, but you know it's it's a debate we could go on for some time having I suspect Gethin. yeah absolutely I mean lots of l and d people think that well-being should sit with them lots of health and safety people think well-being should sit with them I think the reality is it's still finding its feet you know there are still not that many companies that have a well-being lead, let alone a global well-being lead. This group I, I manage, which I mentioned, you know, there are people in that group that have a strategy, that have a budget, that have CEO attention. There are some people who's effectively their job is you just communicate mental health awareness week once a year, and that's pretty much what your job is. The reason why I kind of got more into well-being is because my background started in benefits. And what we started seeing was that well-being was tagged to benefits because most companies thought, oh, do you know what? Where are we going to put well-being? Well, there's this team that does health insurance and gym memberships. So let's yeah. just give it to them and we tag that on. And you see it tagged on to diversity and inclusion roles as well. So that will probably change. And I, I would like to think it existed. And so I'd love to see an employee experience lead. I'd love to see a well-being lead. I'd love to see somebody managing both of those as a separate function with a team or with a dedicated attention and resource and wherever that sits. But I think we're in this in this issue where you know, we're all debating it because we're, we're just still trying to find its feet effectively, I think. Yeah, I, I think we can probably all agree, not necessarily wish to speak for us all, but but the CPO is a major stakeholder, a major driver, right? So from our audience and the people listening to this pod, you know, ultimately this is within your gift to solve for, right? So mm-hmm. uh, I think today's discussion has been incredible and really, really grateful, Gethin, for, for what you've contributed today. It's been really helpful. Yeah, certainly. Thank you, Gethin. Absolutely amazing having you on. If you have enjoyed this, listeners, let us know. But you can be sure we are going to drag him kicking and screaming back for a, <laughs> a, a round two, because I think we've only just scratched the surface on some of this stuff. So, Gethin, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Deb, as always, Debbie, good to see you. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. And... Thank you. Thank you. I've really enjoyed the discussion. Thank you, everyone. And we hope you have too. We hope you've enjoyed it. And hopefully we'll see you or hear from you next time on the HR on the Effective Podcast. Bye-bye.